This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to episode three of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work that is being done around the country and break down some of the challenges that we face in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Professor Robin Taylor, an academic respiratory physician at the Royal Infirmary and St John's Hospital in Edinburgh. He is formerly a Professor of Medicine at the University of Otago, Dunedin, New Zealand. May I call you Robin? Certainly, Anne-Marie. Thank it's you. Well, pleasure well, to be here. Yeah, welcome. Um, I wonder if I could start by asking you, Robin, just to tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your current role. My current role has evolved very much. I was used to be very much interested in asthma research and airways disease. But after I returned to Scotland in 2013, I became much more aware, fairly traumatically actually, because I had a a patient who died badly under my care and I was held responsible. Um, I had dealt with the family. They were a lovely family. but during the night, uh, the, the junior staff, largely due to lapses in my part, I didn't communicate well. I communicated what should be done, but what, but this patient who was in terminal respiratory failure was inappropriately um, uh, investigated as to his dyspnea in the middle of the night when he was dying, you know, blood gases and an aminophilin infusion and a chest X-ray and then eventually non-invasive ventilation. And I came out of that experience traumatised and it has shaped the last seven years of my professional life because I I sat down with the church nurse and I said, that's never going to happen again in our ward or in under my care. And I've shaped some, my focus has has been shaped by the idea that um, we need to be, acknowledging of a patient's dying process much more sensitively and much more proactively than we previously did. It's had a great taboo in our in our society, never mind among professionals. And so my efforts, my interests over the last seven years have been to directed in that particular way just because of that experience. Yeah, so thank you for sharing that. I, I think you're you're not alone. I think for all the clinicians listing, they will identify with um, something that's happened in professional life that we would like to turn the clock back and change. But the important thing is is to learn um, and and to influence the future positively. 
I, I know that um, you, you've got this great interest in, in, in palliative care uh, and, uh, and end-of-life care, and I guess there's a distinction therein. Um, I wonder if you could perhaps tell me just a, a little bit more about that and, and how your services have, have evolved. Um, well, I, I, may I say right away, I'm not a palliative care physician, uh, but... Certainly, I believe that skills in palliative care are an important element, certainly for up-and-coming young consultants in a way that it wasn't true for myself. There's palliative therapeutics, but there's also the management of the end-of-life trajectory. And I suppose I don't have any expertise in palliative therapeutics, but bit by bit I've learned that whether it's advanced COPD or advanced ILD. Uh, there are similarities to lung cancer. I'm not looking after lung cancer patients at the moment, but some of the themes are exactly the same. And they occupy the mind and the minds of the patient and their and their family. And we can do so much to, uh, to provide a supportive environment without actually doing anything. Our trouble is we're, we're medics to down to our toenails and we want to fix everything. And when we can't fix it, we feel a failure or we feel as if we've got nothing more to offer. That is not true. And one of the ways to escape from being enslaved to what I call the fix-it medicine mentality is to acknowledge mortality, not just for the patient, but for ourselves. Now, you may think, well, if I'm 35, that's a hard job because uh, it's easier for you because I'm in my late 60s. But I think it's a human issue, whatever age you are, and I think it's a societal and cultural issue which has its particular relevance in our um, in our clinics. So, my in terms of my interstitial lung disease clinic participation, I I try very much to draw out of a patient what are their thoughts as to the future, what are their uh, fears and concerns, and we could say, well, don't you ask all your patients that? Well. I think we have to pause a little bit longer to wait for the answer to that and try to get into this zone that the patient's often in, but they can't talk about it. Nobody has given them permission to talk about it. So uh, I think that's where I've developed professionally in the last few years. No, that, that's really interesting. I, I think that concept of permission to talk um, is, is is so important and I wonder whether sometimes clinicians worry uh, about opening up issues that they perhaps don't feel confident um, to to manage in in the context of the consultation. Um, and 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 you're right; it's uh, our default setting is to do something and not to do nothing. Um, this comment on that, Amory, this hesitancy within us is 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 deeply ingrained. Um, talking about Death and dying is not, we're not meant to be doing that. We're meant to be fixing. Now, you know, and I know that in the realm of interstitial lung disease, there's a significant proportion of patients who, who, whose symptomatology grows and develops and it's not being addressed by therapeutic interventions. Um, we need to train ourselves to have, to have the, dare I say, the key questions. My key question is, you know, um, well, I try to get them to reflect the patient to reflect on the way things have gone, maybe over the last six, eight, 12 months. And then I say, well, John, or well, Mary, if that's the way things have been going, we need to think ahead a little bit. 
when you think ahead, what are the thoughts that occupy your mind? And that's my, it's a very simple but introduction. And you get into then saying, well, what are the thoughts that occupy the patient's mind? And um, and if they don't answer that or you see them, well, you have to get consent. And if the body language is very negative, then you stop. But generally speaking, that's not the case. And if they say, well, what are the thoughts you have? What, what are the things that occupy your mind about the future? I then go forward and I, I, I'm quite explicit. Now, some people would say this is hardly very uh, empathetic, but I say, are you frightened of dying and the way that you might die? I had a 92-year-old who was in exactly that situation. When she got into the toilet, she was exceedingly dyspneic and sat on the toilet sometimes for 20 minutes. And then after she had moved her bowels, she had to get out of the toilet again. And she got that she was constipated because she couldn't get to the toilet. She was frightened to go to the toilet because of that experience. And I said to her, are you terrified you're going to die in the toilet? She said, yes, how did you know? And we then went into, first of all, I, I promised her, I said, you're not going to die in the toilet. You're not going to die suffocating or in an agony of dyspnea. You're not going to be distressed like the way you are in the toilet. She said, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. And I, she said, why is that? I, she, I said, because I've watched people die and they don't die that way. And we got into Now, meanwhile, the daughter who's in her late 50s or early 60s sitting next to her gets absolutely irate with the tone of my conversation. Now, when she left, the old lady said, Dr. Taylor, thank you so much. Nobody has ever been able, nobody's been willing to talk to me about that before. And the daughter's taboo and the, do, the daughter's fear of how her mother was going to die bottled her up. So, you see, I'll be honest, I think, I think that's open to all of us. And I think once you've had a little bit of practice, five, six, seven, ten conversations, you can get it wrong, but better to get it wrong a little bit once in a while than not even try. So I, I understand that um, I, I know that you've spoken before about the importance of, of discussing dying, but I'm, I'm understanding from what you're saying that actually those initial conversations of, of discussing dying doesn't in fact mention death. It just flows there naturally if someone is ready to go there. Is, is that, would you agree with that summary? Yes. I think there are two phases. I think at the time of diagnosis of interstitial lung disease or Yes, at the time of diagnosis, you have to be honest and say, this is what you've got and here is what may lie ahead. And you have to talk about a life-limiting situation. Later on, when you've noticed, noted that the trajectory is downwards despite all attempts to arrest the process, whether it was antifibrotics or, or whatever, I think there's a sort of secondary conversation takes place. And that's the one along the lines that I've suggested, certainly when somebody gets on to long-term oxygen or they have, you know, they have had an acute event admitting coming, coming into hospital, one of the ways I do, I do advanced care planning is to say, now, um, you're at risk here. You, you've got to the stage where a, a pneumonia for you could be a life-threatening or even Yes, a life-threatening event. And then we talk about what they would like to have done. That's where they, you come from. What is dying like to what is the best plan 
And then I said, I sometimes say to them, I said, have you made, have you made your arrangements? And they say, oh, yes, I've got a will and I've, my, I've got a power of attorney. I say, yes, yes, that's for what happened after you're gone. I said, after you're gone, what happens to your money as somebody else's business? What happens to you on the way to that moment when you leave this world is important. And we need to think a little bit about it so that, so that you're given all the support and care that you deserve and you need. And you're not caught high and dry one evening or one weekend and you get a chest infection and you have to call the out of hours or, or the, the NHS 24 line and, and you just nobody knows what to do next. You need to think about that. I want the best for you in the time that remains in your life. And that's the sort of shape of the conversation I have more and more, to be honest. I, I think that's that's wonderfully facilitative. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to ask a question that um, is, is perhaps reflective of the culture that we work in, which is, is slightly algorithmic in its approach, that people like to know when they should start advanced care planning. Um, um, I wonder if you, if you could speak to that. Um, well, in the algorithmic fashion, I would say that if someone's going on long-term oxygen therapy, if their diffusing capacity has got down to less than 35%, if they have had a hospital admission with an acute event, which is characterized by acute respiratory failure, even although they're not in chronic respiratory failure, and it has been potentially life-threatening at that time, they're the sort of patients I would say, it's time for the conversation. I mean, in the first two or three years of treatment, or monitoring, uh, I think they need to know they have a potentially life-limiting condition. But I think the details of an advanced care plan doesn't need to be in, in place just yet. But one of the problems is that we procrastinate. And then you end up, you find out that the patient came in with a life-threatening pneumonia a year or two years before you really expected it. And they're they're, they're left exposed and they have a dreadful experience, not because ED staff are callous, not because general medicine staff are callous, but they come into ED or they come into general medicine and they're, 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 they're unprepared for the situation in their own minds and so are the family. And the interactions are therefore limited because the, because the patient is, is struggling to process what's happening to them. And, and I, that leads me on to um, a, another area I'd, I'd be keen to explore with you is is the family who are obviously pivotal to looking after their, their loved one, but not always on the same page and, and perhaps often like the healthcare professional will do anything possible to keep their loved one alive. Um, is there, from your experience, anything that you could share with us about how to manage those situations? Yes. Well, I found, I mean, this sounds like self-advertisement at the moment. I, I developed a little booklet called Coping with Crisis to deal with exactly that. I found that the, the, the interaction over 15 minutes to 30 minutes max in an outpatient clinic wasn't enough. But they had to have time to process stuff. So I developed a little booklet which deals with some of the issues I've just been talking about a moment ago. And I said, now, have a read at that. Come back. It won't all apply to you, but can you come back and we'll have a further conversation. And you ease them into the the framework or the, the mindset. Um, I I think 
you have, I think I often say to the family, I said, now, there are lots of things we can do in medicine, but there are some things that we ought not to do because they create more distress than they relieve. And I get I get them off the hook of believing. You see, some families are on the hook, the same hook, the same taboo. But if they if they concede that they you know, you have to do everything, doctor, you have to do it that if they back off from that, they're letting their family member down. Their their mother needs you to push as their advocate for everything to be done. When all the while A, the mother may not want it, but B pushing that way leads to over-treatment with the wrong things, which are not going to make a difference in the, in the end, of, but except create harms, and under-treatment with palliative interventions. And this idea that, oh, you're giving up on my mother, that's the one I have to navigate perhaps more often. I say, no, I'm not giving up at all. Nobody's giving up. Nobody's giving up. We just have to shift the focus. And we, what's best for your mother isn't trying to get her, her lungs that are packing it in so i don't use these words to be honest but you get the idea yes. <laughs> um, the lungs that I've, I've got nothing more to give need to be need to be managed in a different way so that your your the distress that your mother or your father or your sister or your brother can experience at this stage of their lives is kept to a minimum because we can't turn the situation around i'm sorry about that but we can't turn it around so I wonder, Robin, if you could um, share some thoughts around our optimal management of perhaps a patient who may present in hospital um, with a chest infection, a, an underlying diagnosis of an interstitial lung disease and uh, presenting in respiratory failure, how we might navigate that pathway of care. Mm. Yes. Well, I, in the present situation, it's not uncommon for patients with ILD complicated by chest infection or to come in by ambulance as a standby call. And I've worked closely with a number of ED consultants and acute medical receiving unit consultants. And we're working on this in Lothian at the moment. Um, it's been it's been sporadic over the UK over the last 10 years, but it's, it's to really emphasize the need for a treatment escalation plan. Now, a treatment escalation plan applies to now or later on, but either way, it's about pausing long enough to say, what are the goals of treatment? What are we trying to achieve? And that's the theme. we have. When you're deciding to deal with an, somebody who's acutely ill, and it doesn't matter whether it's a chest infection, complicating ILD or whatever, you have to say, what's the context? And secondly, what are the consequences? So there's context and consequences. And if I think of the context of a patient's illness, I'm not just talking about thinking about their PO2 or their PCO2. I'm thinking about the fact they've been deteriorating for 12 months. I've had an, an admission two months ago. They're at home where they're on oxygen and they can only walk 10 or 20 meters on the flat and they got a package of care. All these things, their context. And what if I go for a maximum intervention? Now, with... ILD, heading for ITU or HDU, hopefully, I mean, most people would pause before they go that far. But the point is, there's context and there's consequence. And there's also, if the patient's been through this already, what are their thoughts? And engaging, rather than embarking, feeling you have to do something within the first 10 minutes, pause long enough to say, 
you know, the John or Mary question. John, you're not well, and you're sick enough. I have to tell you, you're sick enough to be to die, and it's it's a serious situation. What do you, what would you like us to do for you? And here's what we can do. And I usually unpack one or two. You know, I, I can give you antibiotics. I can give you oxygen. I can, and sometimes if it's a COPD patient, you might mention NIV and so on. You say, but that's what I can do. But what are your thoughts? What would you like me to do? What would be the best for you? And it doesn't take ages to ask that question. And that's the important context, consequences, and the mind of the patient are the starting point for acute interventions in that in that situation. And I think that's another transition we are needing to make in all our acute hospitals, whether it's surgery or medicine. Um, and uh, you asked me a wee while, you asked me what I would like to see in two or three years' time. That's what I'd like to see as a standard of care. <laughs> the, that that we, we either escalate if it's appropriate or we don't escalate if equally that's appropriate and so on. So there we are. That's that, There are my thoughts on the acute crisis. Yeah, no, thank you. And, and uh, I guess it's also um, ensuring that the patient is making a truly informed choice. Uh, thank you very much, Robin. We've come to the end of our time today, but it's been absolutely fascinating speaking with you. And I'm sure the listeners to this podcast um, will benefit from um, reflecting on the conversation that we've had and thinking about uh, their practice with patients uh, who are in need of both palliative and end-of-life care. Thank you very much for joining us today.